Okay, welcome back, Rich. We're Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about 89 Upper Deck Baseball, the iconic inaugural offering from Upper Deck, which really was momentous in many ways, in high-end brand, debut of card number one, which is the most graded card of all time, Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie card, best rookie card, I suppose. What are your recollections of, of that uh, 89 Upper Deck set? Well, 89, what's f- most fascinating was that it took forever to get the, that out to the market. We had Tops, we had Fleer, we had Donruss. They were all on the marketplace. Fleer had, Fleer had the big hype at the beginning of the year with the Billy Ripken Rick face card. And Tops was always Tops. They had all those rookie stars. They all the future stars. They had all those young guys in it. <clears throat> and uh, Donruss had a bunch of rated rookies as usual, some of whom would eventually pan out and some of whom wouldn't, like Luis Medina who was always, since there was the big hit at the time, called Funky Cold Medina. I always have to think of him as Luis Funky Cold Medina. And there was a Cameron Drew rookie in there. And there's some guys in 89 Donruss, you would just say, who are these people? Even then, you would say, these guys are 25, 26 years old. Where are they going? So we talk about Ken Griffey Jr. being nailed it, but there were other not winning lottery tickets. Yes, even... Even upper deck card number three was some obscure pirates rookie card, and he was 26 at the time, and he was going nowhere mighty fast. Upper deck did nail Griffey. Tom Guideman, who was working for upper deck at the time, is the guy who says make him card number one. And he was the you know, and for years, you know, it was like exactly. an inside hobby secret that he's the guy that really was the focus of getting a lot of the stuff in the upper deck first checklist right. Sage, and he's with he's Sage the now. GE yep. of Sage. And he's still active in the hobby, and he's... Well, that's a great claim to fame. Do you remember the summer before? The 88? I sure remember the summer of 88. I mean, I remember the hype about... remember in an upper deck context of, like, at the National and Persephone and those kind of things. Well, 88, the National is in Atlantic City. 84 Nationals. 88 Nationals Atlantic City. And, you know, an upper deck was handing out promo cards, and they were... Lonnie Joyner and Dwayne Weiss, who who were both... uh, California Angels. Possibly owners. They were putative owners. They were wanting to be owners, but that was not allowable right. for active yeah. players to have ownership right. interest in a licensee. So according to Pete Williams's book, Card Sharks, about Upper Deck, Dwayne Boyce eventually got like a settlement that was so large he was able to retire to some ranch and never be heard from again. And he doesn't have to deal with any of this anymore. And Wally Joyner continued playing another 15 years. And he had a very nice major league career, too, and he's, you know, very dedicated to his faith, and he's basically had a nice retirement, too. And so they both did very well for themselves. Upper Deck, in a lot of ways, could not have picked two better people to have been the uh, been the faces of the original franchise. Well, it, it, it seemed to work out for everybody. Uh, as I recall, Richard McWilliam, who later became the primary owner, was the accountant in the first ownership group. And there was a, uh, was it Paul Sumner, who was yeah. the printer? And, uh, was it Bill Hemrick, who was the, had a, the upper deck card store? And shop. it was the name of the card store was Upper Deck. And so those guys got together, and I, I admire, uh, people who do something that, that hasn't been done before, and they came together with their respective talents. And by all accounts, they hit it out of the park for quite a while. They sure did. And, you know, Upper Deck's still around today, and there's still a lot of, I'll, I'll use the word vestiges of 89 
just on the fact that they, you know, they still have a great name for a lot of people in the hobby because of what they've done in 89. I hear a lot of really good things when I read message boards about their customer service department. They've really stepped up that. Their designs on their sets are, in, are good, and they've, they, they have a hockey license, and the hockey license is a perfect license for them at this point. It's not overwhelming. But, you know, they can make money with it. Well, I'm sure they'd like to have additional licenses. I'm sure they would, too. But but for whatever reason, over the – and I've been not on the – I mean, I've been kind of retired, but, I mean, I observe what's going on in this movement toward more single-source, monopolistic uh, arrangements for one producer of cards within a sport, I'm – it is what it is. It wouldn't be the way I would do it, but I wrote about, I'm in I wrote, charge. I wrote about that in the GTS column when, uh, just before Topps made it formal that they had extended their MLB properties license for many years. And I said, you know, if you think about it, there's almost everything is an exclusive. You know, my, my brother-in-law had just about had a contract signed with the Rangers to provide internet service and Wi-Fi to what is now called Globe Life Field. It may have still been the ballpark in Arlington at the time. And he was very frustrated. He's still upset that he didn't, you know, get that deal because a national licensor got the whole deal. And my point was baseball wanted to deal with one person, not with 30, 30 people having 30, 30 licenses. They actually saw what happened with like Jerry Jones. Let's say Coke. I'm trying to remember Coke, Coke was Pepsi thing, Coke yeah. Pepsi thing. And it's a lot easier when you have one person to deal with and one group to deal with. And I get that from MLB properties perspective. And so the NHL and Upper Deck have been excellent partners. So a lot of that was built on the 89 set. And the interesting thing with 89 is in a lot of ways, they also changed, they started changing the rookie card rules. The, when they put the cards 701 to 800 in the same packs as cards number one to 700 when they did the late Even season. though it was an extended set, kind of like right. uh, Tops had done, uh, and, and I guess Fleer had one too, that... They were doing. They were box doing. Sets. They were doing, but they were box sets only. They only weren't available packs. to uh, distributors. Uh, only, only hobby available. Yeah. Upper Deck was saying, "Why don't we make these cards available to everyone?" But they put them in a box too. They put them in a box too. They were both. But you of, could get them in the pack. But you could get them in a pack. And the most expensive card in '89 out of out of the Upper Deck extended set was Jerome Walton. <laughs> Right, rookie year, but uh, that's about it, I suppose. Right, and he had a decent. I looked him up. He was still playing the major leagues like ten years later. I mean, he wasn't a star or a starter, but he had a pretty decent overall major league career. But he never hit the heights that he did as a rookie in '89. But upper deck. So in a way, the upper deck even got a break. Griffey had a nice year, but then they were able to put people like Jerome Walton right. and Dwight Smith into those right. high number cards. And there are other people too. There's Jim Abbott as a high number rookie. Todd Zeal, I think, may be in a high number. I don't think Zeal, but Omar Vizquel definitely is a high number rookie card in 89. So they got a lot of guys right who came up during the year in 89. Well, they had 800 shots at it. That's true. (laughs) So that's not not bad. But So Upper Deck's done a lot of things right, and uh, they continue to. But again, the changing landscape with the rules changing, every company's had to adapt. And they've adapted, but I'm sure they like to have some additional licenses. Everybody would like additional maybe that'll maybe that'll uh, come up. Everybody would like additional licenses. But you know, one of the things with 89 Upper Deck, they were their suggested retail price for a pack, and I don't know if anybody ever bought one at this price, was a dollar. And they were the first dollar pack, and we were all aghast at 89. How are we gonna sell? How are you gonna get away with that? Yeah. How are you gonna get away with that? I mean there'll be a revolt. Yeah, everybody's packs everybody's packs were fifty cents each, sixteen, fifteen, sixteen for a box in a hobby store. 
it had been that way probably for the last six or seven years with 50 cents, nice price for a pack. Another angle uh, for 89 Upper Deck, since the owner of the company, uh, one of the owners had been a printer and they had the hologram, but they also had superior quality control and paper compared to the standard of the day. Right. And so when you're looking at the pop reports for those cards, they generally are coming in pretty, pretty nice. As they should, and they're also beautiful cards, you know. But we, again, compared to their competitors of the day, we're not. You know, we talk so much about the scarcity of '89 and the Griffey rookie, which is a beautiful card as it is. It's a great headshot of Griffey. Right. You know, even if the cap is a little bit airbrushed, that's okay. But the cards were so beautiful: the front photo, the back photo, the stats, the write-ups. Score was doing back photos, but the paper stock was so much better for 89 Upper Deck than the traditional cardboard stock. Upper Deck had a different business paradigm of of uh, uh, putting, again, if you're going to sell a pack for 25 cents or 50 cents, that you, you're limited on what you can put into it. If you double that, you can put more into it. So, But, again, that's one of the, the uh, what is it, uh, flattery or imitation is the sincerity. Serious form of a flattery. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And so they were imitated. And I don't know that they felt flattered. <laughs> no, it's it's hard, but you know, they helped usher in 19- look at the nineties. The nineties had more slicker and shinier and, and and other printing elements that had never even been contemplated in the 80s or the 70s. I mean, it was almost a year-by-year progression. 90 you have Leaf, 91 you have Stadium Club, 92 you have even Bowman went from their cardboard to their fancier product. Ninety-three, you have finest. I mean, it's a flare. Flare at some point in, in flare is ninety-three. Also, yeah. I mean, you so you know, but so they all responded, and it wasn't immediate, but it was it was. Uh, so in that sense, Upper Deck was a was a pace setter. They did some cool things with their first hockey set was uh, just really got uh, really caught a wave with the English and French and all that. So they they have a they have a nice. Hockey legacy that they've continued. And, you know, they, they do great work. The Tim Horgan set, you know, they've, you know, upper decks all over Canada, and that's still the home of hockey with the agreements they have with Tim Horgan. They mm-hmm. do the National Hockey Card Day, and they make these really cool sets that they, you know, make sure stores have. They do, they're excellent with promotions for both retail and for hobby retail. They, they make sure, like, there's, you know, if you buy $10 worth of packs, you'll get, you know, whatever card or sheet or set it is from upper deck. At the store, so they're very good to this day. They're probably better now than they were when they were started, because like any other startup, and that's really what they were, was a startup in '89. The fact that they got so hot probably precluded them from having to do as much outreach as they probably could have done if they had if they had started the way the other companies had. It's a scary thought, but uh, in '89 they may not have been the hottest startup with ProSet coming that, you know, in with right. Lundetti. They came on even stronger, or at least higher volume. They or their a higher volume, and the other thing was yeah, Pro- they were, yeah, they were was the efficient, and Prosets worthy, and Love Denny's worthy of a of a tribute of a talk by itself. You, mm-hmm. It probably be more than one episode. We can do one, but then you know there's more than mm-hmm. out there. But the thing with upper with Proset is they became the official card of the NFL, so it was really a true partnership. You know, if you look at the logos on eighty nine Proset, they're the official card of the NFL. Well, it was a living set, right? Uh, more so than anything before, except for T two hundred six. Except for T two hundred six. On the other hand, Upper Deck was more uh, into superior printing technology, uh, great paper, good uh, photos, and 
and the, the hologram and all that. So that that was a they, they had their own niche, and like we said, their niche was 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 imitated. But uh, there's something to be said for going first. Yeah, and and, some, and and something else they did going first was the next year. I know we've been talking about '89, but 1990 they had Reggie Jackson sign those 2,500 cards. They're really the first major manufacturer to have signed cards so available. Certified in- autographs in a pack. I got a question for you. If the, if a, two cards look similar, and they're only different by a little bit, does that mean one is a parallel to the other? I think it depends. Sometimes it's a parallel, sometimes it's a variation, and sometimes it's a printing well, My point is, is something a parallel if it wasn't available in the same pack? I'm not sure. I, it's I'm, a I'm, parallel set, but it's not parallel within the original product. You know, I'm, I'm not, just thinking of that. What, I'm not sure. I mean, that's... There's some... Yeah, I mean, that's, I was the EV guy at Beckett for 19 years. You know, I'm the yeah. EV guy. I, to some extent, I'm still an EV guy well, at ComC. And, and definitions are important. And definitions are important. And, and I think it's like everything else. It's a bit of a moving target. You don't, you know, and Bob Lemke, who's no longer with us, who did such great work for, you know, for Krause, F&W. And, you know, he didn't treat everything as a variation. He didn't treat everything as a parallel. Everything was an individual case. And I think that that's really what it comes down to is everything's an individual case. It's a, it's almost a case by case basis. Well, I mean, parallel is an accepted thing, and it, it it came along a little bit later than this. But but um, Upper Deck had errors that were corrected, but not not too many, I don't think. Right. It, uh, they, was that was that the year where they the Dale Murphy? The Dale Murphy's eighty nine. So is Pat Sheridan. There's a Gary Sheffield that I can never tell the difference with the S with the S and S and shortstop being correct and upside down. I never tell the difference. Right. The price is, has always been the same, and it's absolutely correct. You know what? If you can tell the difference, go for it. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that was interesting, and not that Upper Deck was better or worse than any other card company, but it's uh, when back in the day when these things were happening. We had to, I mean, all the companies were helpful to a point, but we couldn't expect them to do our work for us. And so there was some detective work that needed to be, well, it just without, without that, I don't know what would have happened. But when these variations emerged, these corrections, then trying to ascertain whether the error or the correction was more common or less common and, and trying to track the values when mostly in price guides, we're trying to get a willing, knowledgeable seller and a willing, knowledgeable buyer. And in some cases of these obscure errors, well, I've got you f- could find them for very, very cheap, but it was because somebody didn't realize. I can tell a funny story on that. In 1993, the first year of the Florida Marlins, there's a bunch of Marlins cards that have the Marlins like a logo on them. It's a parallel card. But they, weren't, they were only like in retail packs. They weren't in hobby packs. So we called Rich Bradley, who was the PR guy for Upper Deck at the time, and he knew nothing about it. And we're almost thinking, like, he's, he's lying. No, he's not lying at all. Upper Deck Hobby Division, of which he's the PR guy for, didn't know what was going into the retail packs. So it's not always the company's, it's not always the company's fault either for not telling because they don't know what they're putting in their retail packs sometimes. What, was it an overstamp? Yeah, it was something? an overstamp. It was a stamp. Because like I said, if it's not in the same pack, but it, then would it be a parallel? Even though it looks almost exactly the same, we, if it is in the pack, it's a parallel. We treated it, and it's just a treat, similar set. We treated it as a parallel because it like was, a different product. Yes, but it wasn't. Yeah, but it was at hobby and retail. And back in those days, I guess they had rack packs and things like that from Tops in the eighties and seventies, I suppose. Rack packs. I, I collected rack packs in nineteen seventy one. Mel swears, Mel Solomon, a good friend of mine. I think there was maybe some swears to me that he bought rack packs in nineteen fifty seven. 
Well, uh, they were the last series of cards in '57. Or they were, or they no, like, Mel says they or were they Christmas packs. Mel says those were original packs. rack packs in '57. He hmm. swore to me that once. You know, then they became more Christmas. And, but you know, Mel said he bought rack packs. I don't, I don't doubt him on that. You remember? Yeah. Usually, remember what happens when you're between seven and ten years old in the hobby. You usually, yeah. have a pretty good memory. Usually, usually, usually. Any other positive reminiscences about '89 Upper Deck? Again, I, think was, I have fond we, memories of how it got started and all that, and it, it really. Uh, we all made a, money with a, it in 89. I guarantee you that. We all made money. Somehow I ended up ordering a case of 89 upper deck sets. And I got them. <laughs> and it was the easiest profit I ever made in my life. I paid like, and I could, I'm sure I could have made more money, but I paid like 55 or 60 a set. And, oh, I'll give you 80 a set. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to chase down more money. Uh, that's $250 profit for doing absolutely nothing other than moving it from my car to your car. Yeah, I'll take that. And, and then the next year you got to come down to Dallas. And the next year I came down to Dallas. <laughs> well, uh, again, thanks, Rich, for your reminiscences and, and helping draw out some of mine for uh, a company that's now 30 years old. It's pretty pretty amazing. Thanks seems for like having it, me, Jim. Seems like it wasn't that long ago. but It thanks feels to like Rich, yesterday. And we will, uh, we will talk again. Thanks. We have a terrific lineup of sponsors, Beckett Media, specifically including BGS and BAS, under the leadership of Jeremy Murray. Burbank Sports Cards, that's Rob and Ryan Varis with their 43 million cards ready for sale. ComC, tall and talented entrepreneur Tim Getch. Heritage Auctions, led by Chris Ivey and his strong team. Huggins & Scott, founded by golfing gourmand Bill Huggins. Mike's Stadium Sports Cards, the Mike is social media maven and trend-setting card store owner Mike Friedman. Panini, my former editorial teammate Tracy Hackler, plus some of my all-time favorite former Beckett Publications teammates are there. Tops PR Pro and now VP of Product Development, Clay Lurasky, and Upper Deck, my former outstanding price guide teammate, Grant Sandground, their Director of Product Development. I thank them and hope you will too if you have the chance. Thank you.